Ah, always nice to get that off. So good to see you here today. And quite a, maybe this pocket, we'll put it here. Quite a few that uh, we might not normally get to see. So glad you're here. And uh, we have amazing things still ahead because we're going to hear from the strings at the close of the service. So that's going to be amazing. But so glad that you're here for this day when we are focusing in general on the subject of Christian education, but specifically uh, with Vista Ridge Academy, which we are invested here in that place. And what I want to talk to you about today is the why. Why do we do this? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've already asked that your spirit be present and that you would give us ears. Give us understanding, Lord, that we will know our time, our day, our place, and what you're asking of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk about the reason why, and it It very much begins, what I want to say, begins in the passage you just heard read so well for us from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I want to go there again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. All right, let's give context on this. If you had just read the previous chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 5, you would recognize it as the Ten Commandments. Maybe you didn't know the Ten Commandments was also in the book of Deuteronomy. Originally, the Ten Commandments appear in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20. But that is the point at which in the story they are being given by God on Mount Sinai. But now in Deuteronomy, the people are about to enter into the land. The 40 years are over. It's nearly time to go into the land. And Moses repeats for the people the Ten Commandments. And then that's where we find chapter 6 that comes in. These are the commands, decrees, and laws The Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Why did the Lord give them laws to obey in the land? Well, he's going to tell us. Verse 2. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, And so that you may enjoy long life. One of the points that I think we sometimes miss in the reality of the laws that God gave was that God didn't just give a bunch of arbitrary rules designed to ruin the people's lives. In fact, the reason God gave the laws was so that they and their children and their children after them could enjoy, as the passage says, long life. Verse 3, hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. There's an important connection to make here between the experience of life and the law. 
The reason God gave us his law is not so that somehow we'd be saved and be able to go to heaven. You know that, right? He didn't give us the law so that we could go to heaven. And it's a bit of an understatement to say this, but, but, but that, he gave us Jesus to take care of our sins. Now, it's for way more than just going to heaven, but, but we'll put it in that context for now. But he gave us Jesus for that. So why did he give us the law? Well, he gave it to us for this reason. We're not smart enough to know how to live. You see, on our own, we do a lot of dumb stuff. And we don't always make good decisions. And we don't always know the right things to do. So God said, I'm going to help them out. I'm going to simplify this down to 10 things. If they'll focus on these 10 things and do these, they're going to have a good life. Let me just tell you, just from my own experience in life, every time I have acted opposed to God's law, I have lived to regret it. Every time I have acted in harmony with God's law, I have never regretted it. Think about your own life. Think about the things we call mistakes. Think about the trouble they cause. Think about how when mom and dad don't live according to the law, the effect it has on the next generation. Think about the effect that has on the generation after that. You see, God gave us this law to keep us from wasting our lives. It was very important that we live according to it so that we would enjoy long life, so that we would increase greatly, so that things might go well. Verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You may recognize that verse. That's the one that Jesus identifies as the greatest commandment in the law. Now notice what comes after this. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you will know that the Jewish people have taken this passage very literally. There are a number of things you will see happen. The, the more orthodox of the believers will do this thing that's, that's called wrapping tefillin. And what they will do is they wrap something around their arm that has the law written on it. And it comes from this passage. It says, tie them as symbols on your hand. And then there's this, bind them on your foreheads. You will also see them occasionally put something on that has this funny little box in the front. It's called a phylactery. And inside of it is the law. Now, Jesus will actually make a comment about this tradition uh, when he's talking about hypocrites because he say, you make your phylacteries broad. So they're putting these massive things on their forehead to pretend that they are honoring God and his law. So, so you can see that sometimes 
we in our humanity kind of turn this into a show and it's not supposed to be like that. But why would he say your hand, your forehand? Well, that one's pretty obvious, isn't it? Because this is where your thoughts are. The law needs to be in your mind where your thoughts are. And what about your hand? This is how you act. This is where you do things in the world. So he's saying the law must be in your mind and it must be in your action. That's what it's talking about. But you'll also notice if you're there, just outside the door of just about any building, you'll see an interesting little scroll-looking thing on the side of the door. And anyone who's observant will walk out and touch it as they go out the door. That's from this as well. It says... uh, Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The idea being that anytime you left your house, you took the law with you. Now, we don't do those traditions, and, and very often traditions have a tendency of becoming a bit overdone and a bit foolish, but, but at the same time, it wouldn't hurt us at all, would it? To have a reminder to keep it in our minds, a reminder to act according to it, and a reminder whenever we left our house to take it with us. But that's, I'm just talking about us right now. Did you notice what else this passage said? Verse six, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. It is God's command to each generation that we teach to them faith, belief, and God's law. It's his command. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. This is supposed to be a part of the normal discourse of your life. Sharing these things with your family. Why? Well, something to keep in mind. Christianity is always one generation from extinction. You know that, right? You see, if the faith is not passed from the current generation to the next generation, once the current generation dies off, so does the faith. And if there is any value in it, if there is anything worthwhile in it, if it is actually worth holding, then it is imperative that we pass it to the next generation. The fact that you are a believer, to some degree, is the result of a decision you made somewhere in your life. However, not entirely. Because someone told you. Someone who was a believer shared and you believed. And go back a generation before that. Someone told them. Someone told them. Someone told them. The faith is past. But it never is past unless we deliberately pass it on. Yes, everyone makes their own decision. However, you cannot make the decision if you're not confronted with the decision. Someone brings it. So the question that this raises and the the reality that we need to acknowledge is that our children will grow up believing something. 
Okay? No one grows up believing nothing. Because you can't function in the world without a worldview. Everyone will believe something. Your children will grow up to believe something. Do you want them to believe just anything? Or do you want to have a hand in what they believe? Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And this is kind of a famous verse. This is in the New International Version. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now the old King James said, train up a child in the way he should go. Now what is this passage telling us? This passage is making this point that, that what children learn at a young age becomes defining for them throughout their lives. And this text is telling us, now obviously everyone has free will and choice somewhere along their life and there are children who make decisions to go contrary to what they've been trained. However, on the balance, those who are given a worldview at a young age that includes faith will carry that throughout their life. Now, if you're wondering how you feel about that, you're not alone. Because in a minute here, I'm going to read you from some others who also believe this to be true, but aren't so happy about it. But we'll get to that in a second. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 6. Now here's a little description of how that starting children off ought to go. And there's a part here for kids, all you kids out there, listen to this part, this is important. Ephesians 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So I should hear a few more amens out there. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Let me tell you why, kids. Because your parents love you, and they want good for you. And even though they're telling you sometimes things you don't want to hear, they're telling it to you because it's important, because it matters. And your life will be better if you will listen to them and obey them. Now, parents aren't perfect. They're going to make some mistakes. I think we all should set aside a little money for our children's counseling once they get a little older. It's kind of like their college education fund, counseling fund. We're not perfect, but we love you, and we're trying. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, 
so that it may go with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Maybe you never noticed that about the, the uh, what is it, the fifth commandment, right? Is that the one? Honor your father and your mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God has given thee. It, it, Paul points out here, this is the first commandment with the promise. If you will honor your father and mother, then your days will be long in the land. You will enjoy a good, happy, long life. Now, maybe there's a provision there. As long as what your parents are teaching you is what God commanded them to teach. You see, that was the promise from Deuteronomy 6. Teach these laws and commands to the children that their days may be long on the land. Children, listen to your parents. Do what they're telling you that your days may be long on the land. All right, so that's, that's the part for the kids, but there's a verse four. Listen to this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Okay, there's a caution there, isn't it? Don't be crazy, parent. Don't make your children crazy. I've done this a few times. I have experience. Those of you who don't know, I have four children. Uh, they are uh, mostly grown up and, uh, and reasonably adapted to society, thanks to their mother. I haven't always gotten it right. I, I look back on the whole experience. I can think of some times that I was an exasperating father. Drove them quite crazy. It's hard. But it's important. So I told you we were going to talk about this idea of Vista Ridge Academy and the idea of a Christian school. Why in the world would we have a Christian school in a day where there are free schools... Right? What, are we crazy? Why do we do it? I want to suggest to you the reason we do it is because we take these words seriously. That training a child at a youthful age up through those years is critical to what happens later in their life and to the decisions they make later in their life. And because we hold firmly to faith and hold firmly to the belief in Jesus Christ and hold firmly to the idea that what God has shown us as the right way to live really is the best way to live for this reason. We make decisions that the rest of the world would consider to be crazy to spend money for something we could have for free. Because we believe long-term it makes a difference. Now, there have been a lot of different studies and a lot of different ways of looking at this. And you need to understand that this is a, this is a, a connective process. The most important influence in the life of kids is mom and dad. It should be that way. It must be that way. But the other influences around matter a lot. And school is one of those places that matters a lot. Now there's a lot of different studies and a lot of different data on this, but I would just want to show you one slide. I have one slide here today that I want you to see that has to do uh, with this whole subject. Here we go. 
All right, so this was a study that was done. It was actually done in the year 2013, and it was specifically about Adventist schools and the Seventh-day Adventist church. And they just did a simple little survey of people who were no longer participating in the Adventist church. And they found that of those people, 17% had participated in Adventist education up through 12th grade, 83% had not. Those are the ones that left. But on the other side, the people that were current members, 56% of them had participated in Adventist education, 44% had not. Now, singly by itself, that's just one data point, but it's significant, isn't it? You see, one of the reasons that we make this investment is because participation in Adventist education is correlated to a higher likelihood that your children will stay on that course that you set them on. Train up a child in the way he should go. This is evidence of that very statement. Now, there's other data, and, and it's pretty significant in a lot of other ways, uh, but we're not going to go into all of that right now. I'll let somebody else do that on another time. But I just wanted you to see that data point and the difference that it makes to be a part of it. Now, have you ever played the game, uh, Do You and I Know Anyone in Common? It's a favorite Adventist game, if you've ever played this. You go anywhere in North America and you sit down to lunch with just about anybody and you get into a conversation and usually before too long, you will find someone that you both know. Now, this is not necessarily true for you if you became an Adventist later in life. Let me tell you why that game works. That game doesn't work because of the churches. You see, because typically you go to a church and you stay in that same church and you may go to another one, but you don't go to enough churches to know enough people for that game to work. The reason that game works is because for multiple generations, Adventists have believed in Adventist education and have sent their kids to these Adventist schools and that's where they met one another. And typically that's where they met who they married. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't guarantee that everything's going to go great. But the data does suggest it helps. So from the church, you get structure, you get theology, you get teaching. From the home, you get nurture, you get caring. But I want to suggest to you that one of the most important things that happens that needs to happen in our lives, happens in the educational setting. And in that, you get the culture. It is through the school experience that you become a part of this larger family. And often kids that don't go through those schools miss out on that and very often feel on the outside at other points in their life. How much does it matter? Well, whether or not we take this seriously, I want you to know there are some others who take it very seriously. But not for the reason you and I take it seriously. You see, they are of a different mindset. They are of a mindset that says, we don't want the next generation 
believing what their parents believed. Now, I'm not trying to set this up to, to beat up on these individuals or, or, or to be unfair to them. In truth, I want us to hear what they're saying, not for the purpose of being angry with them, but rather for the purpose of understanding how important all of this is. So I want to read you some comments from three different scholars. Very smart people. Very well-learned people. Very thoughtful people. People that I respect greatly from the context of their capacity to think through from their premise to their conclusion. Now, I happen to disagree strongly with their premise. Therefore, I disagree strongly with their conclusion. But I do respect their process. The three individuals, the first one is Bill Nye. Remember Bill Nye? He was the science guy to a lot of people. The second is a man named Nicholas Humphrey. He's an English psychologist. And the third is a man named Richard Dawkins. So let me read you the words of Bill Nye. It was a little surprising when I heard this the first time when this came out. But Bill Nye... Uh, did a video. You could actually find this on YouTube if you want to. Go to uh, YouTube and, and look this up. He said these words. Denial of evolution is unique to the United States. I mean, we're the world's most advanced technological. I mean, you could say Japan. But generally, the United States is where most of the innovations happen. People still move to the United States, and that's largely because of the intellectual capital we have, the general understanding of science. When you have a portion of the population that doesn't believe in that, it holds everyone back, really. Evolution is the fundamental idea in all of life science, in all of biology. It's like it's very much analogous to trying to do geology without believing in tectonic plates. You're just not going to get the right answer. Your whole worldview is just going to be a mystery instead of an exciting place. Interesting, isn't it? As my old professor Carl Sagan said, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. So once in a while, I get people that really, or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, well, why not? Really, why not? Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. I mean, here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. Here is radioactivity. Here are distant stars that are just like our star, but they're at different points in their life cycle. The idea of deep time of this billions of years explains so much of the world around us. If you try to ignore that, your worldview just becomes crazy, just untenable, itself inconsistent. He goes on. And I say this to the grown-ups. If you want to deny evolution and live in your world, in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine, but don't make your kids do it because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can. We need engineers that can build stuff solve problems. So what he's saying is this. Your superstition of faith has gone on long enough. Please stop teaching it to your children. We need it to die with you. 
Now, I've told you before that I don't want to get into an argument about the specifics of creation. But I've also told you before, we are not neutral on whether or not in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Because the veracity of scripture hangs on that truth. Practically every book in this Bible claims the reason for the identity of God is God is creator. But this is something we receive by faith. And this is something that is beyond the capacity, given the presuppositions of someone like Bill Nye, to be able to embrace. Here's his conclusion. It's just really a hard thing. It's really a hard thing. You know, in a couple of centuries, that worldview, I'm sure, will be, it just won't exist. There's no evidence for it. So Bill Nye's prediction is that you will fail. You will be unable to teach your faith to the next generation and it will die out. Now, what do I want you to take from that? Well, one of the things I want you to take from that is the realization that Bill Nye has made that it's parents teaching children that's causing the problem here. He understands just how powerful you are at shaping the belief system of your children. But let's go to Nicholas Humphrey, the English psychologist. We're talking about education. Here's what he had to say. Now, this is a few years old now. This was from February 21, 1997. So this is a little bit older, but I've scanned through some of his other things, and he hasn't really backed away from it. He says this, I'm talking about moral and religious education. And especially the education of a, a child receives at home where parents are allowed, even expected, to determine for their children what counts as truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Children, I'll, I'll argue, have a human right not to have their minds crippled by exposure to other people's bad ideas, no matter who those other people are. Parents, correspondingly, have no, interesting language here, have no God-given license to enculturate their children in whatever ways they personally choose. No right to limit the horizons of their children's knowledge, to bring them up in an atmosphere of dogma and superstition, or to insist they follow the straight and narrow paths of their own faith. Isn't that fascinating? It's the exact opposite of Deuteronomy 6, isn't it? What he's saying is, you don't have the right to decide what your children learn. In short, children have a right not to have their minds addled by nonsense. And we as a society have a duty to protect them from it. So we should no more allow parents to teach their children to believe, for example, in the literal truth of the Bible or that the planets rule their lives than we should allow parents to knock their children's teeth out or lock them in a dungeon. That's the negative side of what I want to say, but there will be a positive side as well. If children have a right to be protected from false ideas, they have to a right to be suckered by the truth. This is an interesting point. You see, he has ruled out the possibility of God and the reality of Jesus Christ and labeled it as a fable. But now he wants to turn around and replace it with an alternate truth. Remember what I said at the beginning? Your children will grow up to believe something. 
Will they believe the faith that you have passed down? Or will they believe the alternate truth that many other voices want to teach them? They have a right to be suckered by the truth. And we as a society have a duty to provide it. Ah, what is his source of truth? The agreed upon belief of the society. You feel comfortable with that? Let me tell you, just in my lifetime, the things that society said were good at one point are completely different from what society says is good today. I'm going to call that truth. I'm going to put my confidence there. All sects that are serious about their own survival do indeed make every attempt to flood the child's mind with their own propaganda and to deny the child access to any alternative viewpoints. In the United States, this kind of restricted education has continually received the blessing of the law. Parents have the legal right, if they wish to, to educate their children entirely at home, and nearly one million families do so. But many more who wish to limit what their children can learn can rely on the thousands of sectarian schools that are permitted to function subject to only minimal state supervision. He does not have a high view of Vista Ridge Academy. What would happen if this kind of vicious circle were to be forcefully broken? What would happen if, for example, there were to be an externally imposed timeout? Wouldn't we predict that just to the extent that it is a vicious cycle, the process of becoming a fully-fledged believer might be surprisingly easy to disrupt? Can we go back to that slide I showed you a minute ago? Yeah, I guess he's right. If you can break down the process you can disrupt and alter lifelong behavior. Interesting. So I'll come to the main point and lesson of this lecture, he said. I want to propose a general test for deciding when and whether the teaching of a belief system to children is morally defensible. He goes on to describe that, that if it's not something that, that he believes they would embrace later in life, they shouldn't be taught it. And then he ends it in a very interesting way. He actually quotes Deuteronomy. So that's, that's what's interesting about this. These are not people who have not heard the words of Scripture. He says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. These are the words of Deuteronomy. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. I think there should be no limit to our duty to help children to choose life. But for him, choosing life is not choosing faith. I told you one other, Richard Dawkins, of Oxford University. He had this to say. At least the fundamentalists haven't tried to dilute their message. This is actually a, a, a statement in the context of how Christianity has so much tried to keep pace with society sometimes. And the net result of that is that you, you end up with, with uh, very socially conscious and active people, but no foundation to what they believe. We have to be careful of this. 
At least the fundamentalists haven't tried to dilute their message. Their faith is exposed for what it is for all to see. If children understand that beliefs should be substantiated with evidence as opposed to tradition, authority, revelation, or faith, they will automatically work out for themselves that they are atheists. The Bible should be taught, but emphatically not as reality. It is fiction, myth, poetry, anything but reality. As such, it needs to be taught because it underlies so much of our literature and culture. Some of the words being spoken. But I take you to John chapter 20, to a verse we've read several times recently. John chapter 20, after Jesus has his encounter with Thomas, You remember Thomas is not there the first time Jesus appears to the disciples. And he says to the others, unless I put my hand in the scar and and, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. He required the kind of evidence Dawkins is talking about. But the next time Jesus does appear and he's there, And Jesus says, Thomas, come, put your finger here. Come, put your hand in my side. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now verse 29, this is what I want you to hear. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, we're not going to be able to play by Dawkins' rules. We're not going to be able to come up with empirical evidence that will satisfy him that proves Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We're not going to be able to come up with empirical evidence that satisfies him that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And until it happens, we're not going to be able to prove to him that Jesus said, if I go, I will come again. But if we let go of any of those three foundational truths, then we have abandoned the whole thing. And we have accepted that this world is a world of despair, that the rules of evolution, the strongest survive, are the rules of this life, and that we have no hope and we have no future. Those are the stakes. What are we teaching our children? Why do we have schools? Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Why do we do this? Because the children are the greatest. And when we serve them, it makes us great. 
If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's Jesus talking. Don't mess with the kids. It'd be better for you to be drowned. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Now, I don't want to blame everything about how someone turned out on this or that or the other thing, but it is a known fact that Richard Dawkins, as a young man, the one who has claimed to be an atheist, encountered abuse at the hands of a church leader. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Not only are we not going to do bad to kids, we're going to do good for them. Because it matters. Because the rest of their lives are formed by the early experiences. The world knows. Train up a child in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. And they want to break into that so that your kids will not follow after you. They think they're doing a good thing. But I want to suggest maybe they don't have the whole picture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh on his whole household, but he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Now maybe after Jesus we could say this a different way. We were all slaves of sin. And there was nothing we could do to escape. And we had no hope. But Jesus left heaven and came and became one of us and in the flesh overcame every time we failed. And by giving his life, gave to us grace that we might be redeemed, that we might be transformed, that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that we might go forth into this world not like we were, but like we could be. That we would enjoy long life and that we would know joy and that we would, the generations would believe and our families would gather together in the faith and in rejoicing. So how should we be? 
in every way that we can be. There are voices out there that would seek to shut your mouth and mine. Psalm 34 verse 11 says this. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to not be fearful to teach our children the fear of the Lord. Help us not be too busy to teach our children the fear of the Lord. Help us to not by means of convenience simply rely on someone else to teach our children the fear of the Lord. Bless us in our homes. Bless us in our church. And particularly today, bless us in Vista Ridge Academy that we will teach our children the fear of the Lord. They will grow up believing something. May it be trust in Jesus that fills their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.